This is verse 25. If you've got a study Bible, you may see the heading, The Cost of Discipleship. Verse 25, Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all, in other words, count the cost, he cannot be my disciple. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your portion for us today. We ask that you would help us understand this passage and others, and then that you would give us what is necessary to be obedient to what we find, what we learn, what you show us. We thank you for this time together at your feet, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start out with with some obvious questions. Um, What does the Bible have to say specifically about the notion of building a new sanctuary. Nothing. Um, What does the Bible have to say generally about the option of building a new sanctuary? Not a lot. Uh, Is that a problem? Are we on our own? No. We have principle. We have wisdom. We have the, the, the thing that the Bible gives to the believer as they study their way through it systematically. It's all inspired and it's useful for those things, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness so that we can be thoroughly furnished like a well-equipped ship ready to set sail. So it's here. It's just not easy. Uh, Like many of those other things in life, when you decide, hey, I should find someone and marry, their name's not in this book. But there is enough wisdom here to choose. Uh, churches have been building buildings for a long time without anything specific in Scripture. You probably were involved somehow in the place where you reside, either designing or building, or somebody else designed and built it, but you paid for it, or you rent it. The Bible didn't say which one or have the address. So there's only but so much drama we should attach to this. Some of it's pretty straightforward. It has to do with wisdom and experience. But at the same time, we need to be cautious because it's no small undertaking. Um, Such things have the capacity to change the status quo. These things have the capacity to uh, disrupt our expectations of normalcy. These things can position us in, in a thousand little vantage points to work against one another. 
They don't make those jokes about churches falling out over the color of the carpet for nothing, right? So when you come back tonight, nobody's going to ask about the color of the carpet, right? (laughs) Not at this stage, at least. We're not that far along. But there's a point to all this. At the same time, it can allow us to do exactly what seems to be working for Wake Chapel, but on a larger scale, allowing space to serve others, which is somewhere in our, our commission, is it not? Let me try to paint a picture here. Hopefully this will be worth its time. You know these things, but it'd be a good idea to rehearse it. Wake Chapel is a conservative church. And the last thing I mean by the word conservative is some type of political application. Uh, Our our American culture looks at that whole thing like a national sport now, and they move those goalposts all over the place. When I say conservatives as, as far as a church, we actually believe that this old book is the final authority for our lives. We actually believe that its contents are true. We actually believe that there are requirements placed on the people God created to be obedient to these things, and if not, there are consequences. We know that believing this book that way puts us in a minority. We know that maybe in the past, uh, people used to think differently about the church in the community. Um, We know that it sometimes feels as if all the home games are over and all the games from here on out are away games. But that would be a conservative church. We open this book and ask it for the answers rather than the other way around, imposing hours on it to make it fit. So ultimate priority here is the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word, the Bible, seeking to understand and obey its truth. At its very basis, that's Wake Chapel. Wake Chapel is also a traditional church. Um, Realizing that a lot of churches planted these days are considered contemporary churches. This church kind of leans back on a number or host of tried and true methods for uh, actually engaging our culture with that great commission. Some of these things that used to be still work. A good example of that would be uh, traditional hymnody. I don't know if you've used the word hymnody lately. We just talk about hymns. But it means that we sing old songs here. Sometimes we sing really old songs. And sometimes we sing really, really, really old songs. A mighty fortress is almost 500 years old. It still works. Not that the age of a hymn makes it more holy, but if you understand this book and our modern culture against church's history's past, there were certain things that allowed these prior generations to write more deeply and widely, theologically speaking, than a culture now known for its shallowness and trivialities. There are good songs written today, and we sing some of those too. But in contrast to other churches that wouldn't call themselves traditional, we make good use of really old stuff because we think there's value in it. And then Wake Chapel's a friendly church, which is odd. (laughs) Um, Most Christians 
don't do one another like Christians in this church. You can tell before the service starts that people like talking to one another. It's very noisy in here. I've had people come in from other denominations and say, how is one supposed to calm their spirit and get ready for worship when it sounds like a chicken coop? But that simply means that not only do people around here love one another in the Lord, but they actually like one another too. You know, some families say, I love my, uh, my family, I just don't like them. Uh, and there's some churches that way, and it shows that they've, they've got whole cliques that no one speaks of. You have to stay there long enough to actually learn that stuff, and then you wonder if you, you know, kind of like watching a bad movie, you wish you had you two hours back. This is not that place. The Bible calls it hospitable. And Wake Chapel's known for it. So we're conservative, we're traditional, we're friendly. All that to simply say, you've got a good thing going here. God has been good to this church and for a long time. The question we're up against is very straightforward. Do we want to share that with other people? Because we're running out of room. The capacity to share this good thing that God has given this church. Not that he doesn't give other churches good things. But in this area, my dad used to say this all the time. There's no place like this place. This is the place. This is the summer. We're between the holidays. When that's over and school's back in session, we're going to feel it again. The experts tell us that about 80%... A room feels full. That's because we like a certain amount of space between us. It's like a buffer. We learned that early when we were kids in the backseat of the station wagon. If you had a brother or sister, right? You're in my spot. Move over. Mom, this is my... And you lay like a ruler. You have the little pinstripe on the upholstery. This is mine and this is yours. And we like our space, right? But when you've got pews instead of the flip-down type with a number on it like at PNC Arena... You kind of want your space. Well, we've been through things in the past. As We've got some coming up for the fall to implement when needed. Uh, now we have the capacity, thanks to COVID, to watch this service on screens in our Sunday school rooms. It's likely we're going to need to ask certain classes to sacrificially make the, 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 what do they call that? Take one for the team and watch it in your Sunday school room. And eat in there for crying out loud if you want to. But it's so that we can still be hospitable, so that others can still get in on this. Um, I've used an illustration, and, and no illustration is perfect. They all break down in one way or another, but this has been helpful to me. Uh, you can decide if it helps you think through it yourself. But if a church... Uh, feeds the the soul, consider a restaurant how it feeds the body, right? There's a lot of similarities. If you move into an area and you're new to the restaurant scene, one of the best indicators as to whether or not what they serve is fit to eat is if there's a big line standing out in front of it, right? Now, if you go to the beach, this doesn't work. There are fewer restaurants than there are North Carolina residents cramming into those beaches. All of them have lines. There's no indication as to whether or not it's fit to eat at all. (laughs) 
Here, it could be a new restaurant. Everybody wants to go see what's new, right? But give it a couple months and people will find out if it's fit to eat. But if it's been there a while and there's a line, that means that the supply of what the kitchen's cooking is insufficient to the demand that's asking for it, right? Simple business. And it's a good problem to have. Um, those are the type of restaurants that uh, your R State magazine writes about and only makes the lines worse, right? You say, let's try this. It looks good only to find out you should have been there an hour ago. They have decisions to make at that point. Do we want to expand or do we want to do like the food trucks and just flip the sign when the ingredients are gone and go home? Because we could. There's more people here. Should, should we add some square footage? Do we need a whole another location altogether? Should we build another restaurant just like this one? We're going to need a, two of everything at that point. But they have options. You can probably catch the similarities here. Now, the easy thing to do would be just cram in more chairs and tables in the restaurant. But it's not always that easy because if there are more people sitting in there, there's more people ordering. Do you have enough wait staff to take the orders? Do you have enough kitchen staff to turn out that hamburger steak or whatever it is everybody likes? Do you have enough bus boys to make sure that you can turn the table over when someone goes out and there's people waiting to get in? And on and on and on. It's not just one fix. It's a comprehensive fix. And then there's the business of quality control. Let's say they don't do a very good job at extra wait staff, extra kitchen staff, extra bathrooms, those types of things. They just cram more people in. Quality control is going to suffer. And before too long, not only are people waiting in line, but what they're waiting on isn't as good anymore. Let some food critic write about that. And you know that doesn't happen in magazines. That happens on Twitter. Facebook, people that might not even know what they're talking about. But before long, the reputation is this isn't what it used to be, and you've got a problem. Or the worst thing of all, let's try to change the menu to compete with someone else who makes the hamburger steak different or better. Never mind that Coke tried that and almost ruined America. So if that's a restaurant serving food for the body, what about a restaurant serving food for the soul? Should they mess with conservative, traditional, friendly, what makes this place this place? No. That's what's working. That's, that's where God is blessing the faithfulness of every single week, opening in his word, explaining it in order to understand it, in order to obey it. And then going out into the highways and hedges and telling people about it. That, that's what's working. So we're not going to change the recipe, but the question remains, okay, how do we add tables and chairs? And how do we add the staffing and the volunteer and the support to maintain the quality control, not for our pride, but for God's glory? That's the question we're up against. A couple other thoughts to just... Add some embellishment to the picture here. Some churches are known as institutions. They've been around a long time. They have a unique culture that's been cultivated over time. 
There's a defined status quo. People know what to expect. There's a structured means for maintaining that status quo and expectations. But that situation has its own risk. And over time, the risk is that that winds up in a situation where the institution exists to serve itself. That it's so sacrosanct that we can't change it all, no matter who's coming in or going out. That can be a a problem. It continues to answer questions no one's asking or something along those lines. Kind of like one of those closed-in mutual funds where the old money's there and it's nice to be part of it. But any new money, they're not open. They're closed. Because adding new money would dilute the return on investment. They like that investment, so it's closed. Certain institutions have that problem. On the other hand, there are churches known as a movement. And movements kind of come up seemingly out of nowhere and burst on the scene. Uh, Their fluid cultures wide open because it's brand new. They can quickly cover a space between point A and point B because they have little structure to hold them back. But the risk with movements is a recklessness that threatens their stability, much less their longevity. What I think is needed for these bold decisions we heard about last week, but with wisdom, is a balance between those two. You need those deep roots, but you need the spirit of a movement that that can be nimble if necessary, that can put up with some change in order to have that back later, but serve more people for the cause of Christ. There's risk in, in shifting that slider to either side. And you don't get a practice run. That's kind of why we're talking about this, because we need to do it right. What we'll need is a deep-rooted but risk-taking that allows for bold decisions based on the goodness of God with wisdom that comes from experience rather than presumption. So, where might we find some principled guidance? Well, we already read from Luke 14, and the context depicts this wave of interest in Jesus' ministry. He's just getting started. He's performing miracles. He's teaching like the scribes don't teach, and the crowds are growing and growing and growing. And just like we learned in John, this is about the point where things start to get weird because it's obvious that Jesus is not there to entertain anybody. But that's why the crowds are coming. So he has to be forthright with them and tell them, this isn't about entertaining you. This is about saving you. I'm here for your sins, literally. I'm going to die in your place. They don't know that yet, but that's why he's here. So he starts saying things straightforward that give no guess as to what he expects. And it's not at all what people would have thought. So the atmosphere is electric. People want in on the excitement. Jesus isn't there to entertain. He'd made many generous invitations to follow him. But at a certain point, he had to level with them. And John is probably one of the most clear where he feeds 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. And after they've got these baskets full and no surprise, the next day, the same people show up and Jesus doesn't say, hey, glad to see you. 
whose lunch do you want me to multiply today? He says, you're only here for the food. And it was that day where it was said that many of them stopped following him because he went on to talk about crazy things like eating his body and drinking his blood, which just means, hey, I'm sufficient for your righteousness. He's building the work where we understand what the cross is all about. So in this context that we read, he actually tells them three different times that there are strict criteria that they must meet in order for them to ever be considered his follower. And they were hate their families, sounds great, carry their crosses, that's, that's uh, terminal right there, and then count the cost. And that's those two illustrations, one building a tower and the other defending yourself against an attacking army. So this is an invitation to consider the cost of discipleship or followership. And we learned in our study through the Gospel of John that he always thought more of the person who came to him and the truth than what they thought of him. Remember the the first guy? Day one, John had introduced him, someone's following. uh, Where are you going? Jesus turns around and doesn't say, hey, I'm glad. You're actually my first thumbs up. Um, we'll work something out and, and, and you'll have a privileged spot in this movement of mine. No, he says, what are you looking for? We talked about how goofy it'd be to put somebody at the door and when people come to church, what are you looking for? <laughs> you know, as if it's a secret question and if they answer the truth, you know, we let them in and anything else, slam the door. It wasn't quite like that, but it's not the way we would market anything. And then he's got the guy who says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he says, birds have nests, foxes have holes. I have nowhere to lay my head. If that's what you're looking for, I just need you to know there's nothing to see here. And I'm on my way to a Roman cross. Don't know if he filled in those lines or not, but I think we get the point. If it were different we might really have a a means to scratch bald spot in our head in confusion. But if we pay attention through John's gospel, Jesus isn't asking for anything he isn't or hasn't done himself. He's asking that people follow him and count the cost in doing so. In John 5, Jesus describes himself as a follower who does not need or do anything of his own accord, but only that that he sees his father doing. In John 7 and 8, we discover that his teaching is not his own, but comes from the one who sent him. That's his father. Likewise, his actions are not done on his own authority in John 8. And his comings and goings are appointed by someone else, also in John 8. Jesus clearly states that he's not giving commands, but rather delivering them on behalf of his father in John 12. That he lives uh, as one who obeys commands is given again in John 14. He models love for his disciples because he's following the example he's seen from his father. He explains all that in John 15. He models obedience because it's the key to abiding in the father's love, both for himself and for his disciples. We could go on until he talks about his hour that's coming And then the hour's there, and then there's his cross, and he chooses it after he wrestles in the garden with 
great drops of blood sweating from his face. Not my will, but nevertheless thine be done. So if there's an example of a follower, it's Jesus. And he's simply asking us to get in line behind him and do the same thing. So if we're talking about a church, this is talking about an individual. This is on a personal level. But we've got to decide if what's personal works for what's corporate. If what the Bible tells us in counting the cost of our personal discipleship, fellowship, does that translate into a pile of us corporately engaged in the same thing, but as a body rather than as an, rather than as an individual? So a healthy, growing, thriving, warm, welcoming church really has nothing to do with the American dream. Like they say, home ownership is part of the American dream. So in America, you should have a big church if the church really wants one really bad. That's not it at all. It, it has everything to do with faithfulness to the proclamation of the faith once delivered to the saints. After all, that's the last thing Jesus told us to do. When he went up into heaven... He said, you tell others what I told you. You will be my witnesses. You can't make it up as you go. The message is, is locked in. I've told it to you. You go tell others. Now, your methods, they can change. The message never does. But go tell them. Keep following me as I followed my father and make more followers behind yourself. That's the Great Commission. So if we go back to the warnings that he gave, think of this corporately as well as we do individually. The illustration of the unfinished tower seems straightforward. The town's going to laugh at us if we start building then have to stop. Right? Same as they would laugh at you if you started building your house and had to stop. That's why we waited for COVID to be totally over and lumber to come down. And before interest rates went up. It's maddening. But the last thing you want to do is to have to watch rain rot the thing halfway built. I don't think it'd be any different if we're all together building a church. So that's kind of straightforward on a practical level. That's the cost of getting involved in something that you'll need to see through to completion. Right? But then there's that other one. This, the illustration having to do with the king who's being invaded by a larger army. Now, an attacking arm, army needs to be bigger in most cases than a defending army. Defending, you're dug in, you have all your munitions, you've got your food right where you live. The one that has to travel to you has to carry all that with them. And you can shoot them from holes in the ground. They have to stand out in the open field. So it's doable, but you have to make sure you can handle it. Because the alternative is your destruction, right? That is an illustration of the cost of not following. That's the way that's meant to be understood in this context. So there's cost involved with you becoming a Christian. There's greater cost in you not becoming a follower of Jesus. You're smart people. And as a body, we've got to decide if this shoe fits us, corporately speaking, too. Are there costs associated with building? Yes. Are there costs associated with not building? Yes. If long ago, 100 years ago or so, people had decided not to build the room we're in right now, we'd be somewhere else, right? Duh. 
Well, what happens to the people that we leave behind? Where will they worship? Somewhere. God is not going to give up on his church. But whether or not we do or we don't, we're going to need some wisdom, and then we're going to need to get together and make sure we see it to completion. As far as can we afford to follow Jesus corporately? Absolutely. Can we afford not to? Well, we've got to decide if that's a fair question. Is building or not building, following or not following? That's what you've got to do when you're interpreting Scripture. You've got to be honest with it. Does this context support what we're discussing or not? Well, let's just fast forward a little bit. And we'll say, okay, we're going to buy the idea of counting the costs, positively and negatively. But what if we find those costs expensive? Well, on an individual level, it couldn't be more expensive. Either you give God the top priority such that to the world it may look like you love God and hate your family and hate yourself, comparatively speaking. That's what he meant. Or why in the world would you give up so much of your time to this organization of weirdos? That's what the world would probably think. All dressed up and to do what? To serve each other? Were you carrying your own cross? That's what he meant by it. And then the counting the cost part here. All of it's expensive. In fact, I would think it would be easier as a big group to throw money at a building than to live like Christians. Christians have been buying their way out of holiness for a long time. And in this area, I don't think it's going to be that big of a chore. The bigger chore is the kitchen staff and the wait staff and the volunteers and making sure that each customer feels like you love them if they don't understand that God does. That's the real cost. And that boils down to the individual level. And then is our reputation as a corporate group of people. There's another passage of Scripture. And this one, again, you're smart people. You'll have to see whether or not this fits, if there's any piece of wisdom here to consider. Hmm, okay. In 2 Kings 3... You might just want to write down that address and look at the whole context later. But it has to do with a king and a battle that's impending. Kind of like the situation where you got an invading army. These are bad guys. But he, this is a prophet. This is verse 17, 2 Kings three seventeen. Open the window eastward, and he opened it. That would be the king. Then Elisha, this is the prophet, said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him. You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now... You will strike down Syria only three times. So some background. When the prophet Elisha was about to die, King Joash went to see him one last time. Elisha mustered up enough strength to give a final set of strange instructions. They're strange because they're meant to be more symbolic than they are to be practical, as was a lot of the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. And... uh, Elisha explains that the arrows represent the Lord's arrows of victory over the Syrians. He told Joash to take the arrows and strike the ground with them. 
Elisha knew, and Joash probably understood that each blow to the ground would mean another victory for the Lord for Israel. Joash only hit the ground three times, which is why the prophet is angry and says you should have struck it several times. The point of all that is that the king asked for too little, that God had in mind to bless them far more. But in this case, it seemed like his asking actually limited the delivery of, of God's grace. And it, is that not true on an individual level? Um, where he says, whatever you give, I'll give it back to you a hundredfold. And then says, in this life, we almost expect that whatever we suffer for here in church, we have to wait on the reward in heaven. Not always. But is that true on an individual basis? Oh, ye of little faith, you have little or I would be feeding you meat, but you can't digest that. You're still a bunch of milk babies, is what one of the New Testament authors said. So, yeah, that shoe fits. But could it be true, corporately speaking, too, that we ask for too little? It is possible to ask the Lord for the wrong things. It is possible to ask the Lord for the wrong reasons. But if we ask with the right heart toward the right end, and those are things God has already said he would bless or things that he's already asked us to do, then it's impossible for us to ask for too much. It it really is. So if counting the cost, we find it expensive, both individually and corporately, um, the end of the day and we'll talk more about this tonight how are we going to pull it off at the end of the day God's going to give us some money and then we're going to give the money back to him I I don't know if it's any more difficult than that Um, biblical giving no matter which testament it's a tithe in the Old Testament it's proportionately in the New Testament but either way Giving's always emphasized. Sometimes it's a sacrifice, but it's always a portion of what God has given to us. If I'm checking myself here, rewording. You know, it's the governor that runs ahead of your speech, gets you out of trouble, or digs you deeper. Um, if we will act like Christians should. and are thankful for our salvation down to the resources God has given us, this is no big deal. I I really don't see it as a big deal at all as far as what it will cost, its price tag. And it's sizable. It's 2022. Everything's nuts. God knows that. We're here for such a time as this. So how are we going to pull it off? Here's another passage of Scripture, not as obscure as the other. And again, see if this fits. I think it's great. This is Exodus 35, and this is where God was giving it specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle. Because if we search through the Scriptures as to how these people worship God and where and where he met them, in the beginning it was a tabernacle, it was a tent. They left Egypt uh, after the plagues, went through the Red Sea, they're in the middle of nowhere, God says, build this tented tabernacle. I'll meet you there, and we'll pick it up and move it when we move toward the promised land. You get to the next one with the kings. There's Saul, bad choice. Then David, really good choice, God's choice. Then his son Solomon, he built the temple. 
It's magnificent, but a lot of the direction of that building project was Solomon's, not the Lord's. Then you get to the New Testament. The temple's been destroyed. There's a new one. Herod built that one, who's a pagan. And we see very little about God meeting with people there except to rip the veil in two at the precise moment. He said it is finished, and this is no longer even meaningful. Where it said, stay out, I've paid for your sins, and the invitation is come on in. So a lot changed. And then in the New Testament, if you built a church building and piled up in it, the Romans knew where you were, and it made it easy for them to drag you off to the arena to be eaten by animals. So there's your church, the Bible's history of building places of of worship. But when he said to build the first one, this is Exodus 35, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring to the Lord contribution. And here's the list. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, a little more expensive, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the effort in the breastplate. That was the thing that the priest would wear. What I like about that is probably not even intended as the meaning of the list, but it's certainly a, an insight into how this all worked. Notice the diversity of that list of goods. There's some expensive stuff there. There's gold, silver, bronze. Not everybody had that. And if you did, you're probably different than others. Then there's some medium stuff. There's blue and purple. That's expensive, more so than scarlet. Fine twine linen, that's a big deal. It's fine. Any time a tag says fine on it, it's going to cost more, right? And then goat's hair. That's probably the cheapest out of all of it, not just because it doesn't cost much, because it's readily available. They ate goats all the time and had the hair left over. No one eats the hair. But here's what's great about it. doesn't matter who you are. You've got something to give. You can send the kiddos out into the bramble to collect goat's hair. Or you might be someone who's sitting on a pile of gold. You know, that's always an interesting thing. God knows that some of us have more than others, and he seems to arrange it that way, a diversity in, in, in means almost. We know that having things can absolutely ruin you or it can make you an absolute conduit of God's resources through a place. Uh, There are some people that's names are on buildings at schools that I've gone to um, who could build buildings like that and never know it. You want to talk about 10% of your resources? They could build buildings like that every month and not hit one-tenth of 1%. Types things like that might blow one's mind, but God knows all about it. But he's the same one who sees something precious in a little one bringing something as simple as some goat hair. Everybody was in on it. We're all going to pitch in to varying degrees. Something has our name on it. God designed it that way. And no one of us will do what all of us can do or should. Well, let's close this up. 
like last week's message. Because I, I kind of didn't see that coming, but about every time we choose to teach a book, the Lord gives us what we need right when we need it. And the message itself was delivered by none other than Wake Chapel's second intern. Seth, our youth pastor, was the first. That was over 20 years ago, and he's still here. Uh, Preston Pierce. We we looked at this all month long, and his portion landed on chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. And the whole idea was make bold decisions with wisdom. And when we talked this out, I said, you know, the art of speaking in front of a group of people is to enter certain situations that you don't really know much about with a humility. I mean, I said, let's face it, even a 43-year-old can't say but so much about making bold decisions with wisdom. I don't have any wisdom. And back when I was speaking at a church in my 20s, I didn't know anything. I even told Preston, I'm envious of where you are at the stage I was when I was younger. But how did he conclude it? With a question. How does a 22-year-old headed for seminary the following week have the honor of delivering a portion of God's word from a pulpit in a room full of the people that raised him. And he looked into each of your eyes and said, because of you. Because you cast your bread on the water, hoping to get it back, not selfishly, but willingly, sacrificially. There's a reason why this church is the way it is. There's a reason why 20% of our budget goes out the door to missionaries whose end users could never pay it back. Because we believe in that type of thing. We've been commanded to do that type of thing. This young man last week sat under hours worth of preparation for Sunday school lessons. Hours worth of upward coaching. Hours worth of mission projects. Hours worth of listening to messages that were put together for the purpose of learning. Understanding God's word and obeying it. The question is... How much investing do we want to do? And does this old church have some risk left in it? Or are we stuck in fixed income? That was his point. Don't get frozen up. I know we just got through COVID and the economy's a wreck and there's probably another shoe that's going to drop. But when would the Lord have us lock down and do nothing? He mentioned the parable of the talents. Don't be the guy who took the gift God gave him and buried him in the ground because he was scared when the Lord came back he might not have it. Be the guy who spread that out on the waters, diversified it, had a well-balanced portfolio of risk for the kingdom of God, including our own peril. Again, remember, the world thinks this is ridiculous. We don't have much time. I'm already halfway dead. I'm middle-aged, right? Isn't that what Ecclesiastes is teaching us to do? Look at it realistically. Stop pretending that we have all the time in the world. Let's start doing something for the kingdom of God that has all eternity. Eternity. 
So at the end of the day, you know, we voted to begin this process. We're going to talk more about it tonight. But here's how we'll close. What we want to do is what God's people have always wanted. And that's to be faithful in witness. But we want the space and the seating and the parking to accommodate all that faithfulness. On whatever scale the Lord chooses. If we've got excess... We're not taking it with us. We'd be a fool to throw it away. And we'd answer for that. But we might answer for hoarding it. If life is not for gain but a gift, we need to be good stewards of what God has gifted us. And the last thing I'm talking about is our money. It's what God gave us in our heads and in our hearts, our personalities, our stories, Life under the sun where he is Lord and we are nothing. This community needs that. And if we can serve more plates, I say let's get cooking. With that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to search your word for wisdom. Lord, may we be careful when we're looking at your word like this. Might it be from a foundation of knowing your Bible from front to back and the thread that whispers your name all the way. And then to take that comprehensive view of grace and salvation and eternity and start asking questions about our obligations to our neighbor. Not who's my neighbor, but who are we neighbor to? And Lord, would you see fit to bless not us, but your kingdom for which you died. Lord, we'll have to be patient. We'll need your help. We'll need an extra measure of love, not for ourselves, but to give away to others. This is just the beginning of the conversation. But Lord, may we value a task unfinished. And would you be so pleased as to show us our sin, but to show us our Savior and to show us your glory. We ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.